I'll invite you now to turn in your Bibles, or you can find the passage uh, here before us in the bulletin. It's a bit shorter this morning. Uh, passage from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. And I remind you that last week we considered the Apostle Paul's majestic prayer on behalf of, uh, or for the sake of the Ephesians, rather, prayer to the Father that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them in their inner being so that Christ would dwell in them by faith. And we saw how the church is now the new spiritual global temple of God. And despite our struggles, despite our weaknesses, God is at work in us. He is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think. And he is taking us by his promise from one degree of glory to another until we reach the whole fullness of God dwelling in us. And so with that, with that reminder where we were last week, let's now give our attention to the word of God. From Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, loved ones, as we wait, make our way through this letter to the Ephesians, here we've come to a transition point in his letter, where he transitions from the indicatives to the imperatives, from the what is to now what you ought to do, from grace to gratitude, how we ought to live in gratitude in response to his grace, from doctrine to practice. But notice here, in the very second word of our passage, he says, I therefore, therefore, and with this word, Paul, he's pointing back to everything he has already laid out for us in chapters 1 through 3. And so it's good for us to remind ourselves what he has laid out for us. What is that foundation that he's referring back to here? In a word, amazing grace. The amazing grace of God in the gospel. The sovereign grace of God in saving us from our sin and misery or narcissism, etc. And then uniting us together in Christ as one new people, one new humanity, one new living temple of God. We saw last week the, the global church of God is that spiritual temple that he wants to fill with all his glory. And so Paul here, by saying, therefore, he's saying in light of all of that, in response to that, this is how you ought to live because God has done all of that for you. Now you go and do this in response. And so we've come to that transition. And we see that the true gospel, the true gospel, it always comes with a therefore. Always a therefore. If you think God forgives you so that you can keep on sinning unashamedly in your life, living the same way as you did before, 
Well, then you don't understand the gospel. The true gospel always comes with a therefore. Remember what we saw back in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where Paul said that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is a gift of God, not of your doing, right? And then he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, the end goal of the gospel is not only that we would have our sins forgiven, but that he would fill us with all of his presence, making us more and more a pure and more perfect reflection of who he is, that we would be renewed in the image of God. And so the goal is to transform us into something far better than when we currently are. He wants to renew us. And so the gospel always comes with a therefore, pushing us forward, enabling us, strengthening us, moving us forward. Now, at the same time, as we come to this transition towards the outcomes, the consequences, the ramifications of the gospel in our life, Paul doesn't mean to leave the gospel behind. That would be a complete mistake of what he's doing and what he's saying. The good works that we are called to, they flow out of our union that we have with Christ. And that is why, as he said in the passage before this, that we need to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. It is like the rich, fertile soil that we must grow and spread out our roots and that we might produce the good fruit of righteousness. We need to be in that rich, fertile soil of God's love for us in the gospel in order to produce true fruit of the gospel. Because, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1, 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the power that enables us to walk in obedience, it comes from the gospel itself. So we never leave the gospel behind. So I just wanted to make that clear as we move forward here. With that, what is Paul saying is the therefore in our passage? What is he really calling us to? Well, we see that God the Father has called us out of our lonely narcissism to unite us to his global church, his spiritual temple. Therefore, we must walk in that reality, walk in unity with each other in the church. As Jesus Christ laid down his own life on the cross in order to make peace with God for us and with each other, as Paul earlier said, he is our peace so we must lay down our own selfish desires in order to live in that peace that Jesus shed his blood for. The Spirit connects us, as we've seen, to the cornerstone of the temple of God, Jesus Christ, and he, in a way, glues us together as spiritual bricks in the living temple of God, the spiritual temple. And so, because that reality, we must not tear apart what the Spirit is building and putting together the bond of peace. We must preserve that. That's in general what he's getting at here. And he's saying from the outset that there is a lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And he's calling us to it here in this passage. And we'll consider three aspects of it this morning. First, the command, then the cause, and lastly, the core of our unity. And the first point just to forewarn you, is the longest, the second, or the last uh, two are a bit shorter. But first, we'll look at the command itself. 
with the Apostle Paul here in the first verses, he gives us an authoritative command towards a way of life that is worthy of the gospel. The verb that the Apostle Paul uses for urge here, it represents a strong appeal or exhortation to action from someone who is a superior, who has authority over others, his audience. And so Paul, he's stating this with authority. It's not simply a wish or desire. He's saying authoritatively, you must do this. And who is Paul and what authority does he have over us? Well, we have to remember he was commissioned by our Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected state. Uh, And so he was chosen specifically by Jesus as a messenger to the nations, to the Gentiles, an ambassador of King Jesus. And therefore, he represented Jesus and he carried Jesus' authority when he spoke on his behalf and wrote on his behalf. So this ultimately, this command comes from our Lord Jesus Christ through his apostle. In the classic book, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a fantastic book that I'll be quoting a couple times here this morning, uh, there Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, if you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to yourself. It is Jesus himself who is calling us to fellowship with others, not just Paul. Jesus himself. Now notice that Paul, he refers also to himself as a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner of the Lord. Why would he mention that here? Well, I think that as a good leader, he is not calling them to do anything that he himself is not already doing and striving for. He's stating basically, remember my chains. I am here in prison suffering for your sake as Jesus laid down his life in order to unite you to the Father and the Holy Spirit and to himself and to each other, so I am laying down my life here in this prison in these chains for your sake, that you would be brought together and preserved in that unity. Go and do likewise, is what Paul is saying. And so we see that this command from the Apostle Paul, it comes with authority, the authority of Christ, our King, but also it comes with authenticity, because he himself was striving for this, in all of his ministry. Now, what is exactly the thing that he's commanding us to do? Well, first, Paul says that we would walk, that is, have a a manner of life, a lifestyle, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, and then he explains what that means by saying, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And notice here, this is really important, that this lifestyle he's describing, it necessarily takes place in community. It has to do with our relationship to other people. It's not just being humble individually and with ourselves or gentle with ourselves or patient with ourselves. No, it's, it's all with respect to others that we live in community with. Each aspect of it deals with how we treat others and relate to others in the church. So we can consider each part here briefly. With all humility. Well, humility, humility considers others as more significant than yourself, as more important than yourself, which reminds us, it should, of another passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, where he says there, Do nothing from selfish ambition 
or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not out only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in that passage, Paul goes on to show us how Jesus exemplified that by laying down his life, coming, humbling himself as a man, and then to the point of being a servant, and then to death on a cross as, a, as one who is crucified as a criminal in, those age, in that age, excruciating and shameful death, all for us in his humility. He did not insist on his own way. Servants do not insist on their own way. Servants seek the best interest of others, right? Uh, to illustrate this, we don't have currently uh, servants or household servants uh, today, but one role that is kind of like that is a, a waiter at a restaurant, right? Uh, they, they, their job is to come and serve you at your table and your family and seek your best interests, etc., cetera, uh, and serve you well. Now, imagine you go to a fancy, nice restaurant, and you look at the menu, and you, uh, the waiter comes up, and you order what you want, what looks really good to you, and the waiter says in response, no, uh, that's not good for you. No, uh, that's not going to work for you. That's not what I like. This is what I like. This is what I prefer. Now, I insist that you have this, and I'm going to order this for you and tell the chef to make it for you. Well, that wouldn't work at all. That's, that's ridiculous, Right? That's not the kind of service that we expect. Well, this is how foolish and absurd we are when in our life and community together in the church, we insist upon our own personal preferences in the church on matters that are non-essential. When we push others away because things are not exactly the way we like and the way we want it. When we cause division because we insist on this or that according to our own personal preferences, we're doing the same thing. We're not acting like servants at all. We're not being humble. In fact, it's our ego that's getting in the way. That's what Bonhoeffer says, is that the way to God and the way to my brother is blocked by my ego. It's blocked by my ego. It gets in the way. But the gospel humbles us. It kills our ego. It shows us who we really are. And so it it gives us that disposition, the gospel does, to treat others as more significant than ourselves. So humility, humility. Also gentleness, and this word can also be translated as meekness, meekness. And both of these words, humility and gentleness, are the same words that our Lord Jesus used to refer to himself, to describe himself in Matthew 29, where he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that he's a pushover in any way. We know that Jesus was strong and confident uh, in, in his identity and who he was in relation to the Father, etc. He was strong and confident. But what then does it mean, gentle? Well, I think Dane Ortland is right, the author of Gentle and Lowly, a really good book, um, when he says that it means that Jesus was approachable, approachable. Dane Ortland, he says this, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. He is fully approachable, approachable. Now, why are some people not approachable? 
That's again because that ego that gets in the way, right? Such people are pretentious people. They have all kinds of prerequisites and conditions for their approval of you. And as you approach them, as you, you come to talk to them, you, you've probably witnessed this and experienced this. It almost seems like they're sizing you up with their eyes. They're looking you up and down to see what kind of clothing you wear. Uh, they then, with their questions, are trying to figure out what your worth is, how educated you are, etc. And all determining whether or not you're really worth, worthy of their time and their energy, or whether or not you're below them. That is a terrible thing. The pretense, the, the narcissism that reigns in humanity. But loved ones, remember this, that nobody was too low for our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, nobody is too low for you. And so we ought to be humble and gentle and approachable like Jesus. You see, Paul, he's commanding us to reflect the very heart of Jesus himself, who was gentle and lowly of heart. And then Paul, he goes on to say that we are to walk with patience, bearing with one another in love. And that word there for patience in the Greek literally means long-suffering, long-suffering. And so we are to patiently tolerate people who are difficult or even foolish with their words and their actions. That's what he's calling us to. It's a kind of suffering. It's painful to deal with such people in their folly and in their difficulties. Not just strange personalities, but difficult people that still have real sinful problems. And that's all of us, because we live in this community together. We have to face weaknesses and failures of each other. And so this command only makes sense, again, in community. In his commentary, Dr. Baugh, he says this, a walk characterized by all humility and gentleness is easy to project in a vacuum when no one else is there, right? Or when surrounded by admirers and friends. But now Paul gives shape to what genuine humility and gentleness looks like when they enter the crucible of real life in the church. You see, we're, we're not just a group of friends here. Uh, we, we love each other, but we have difficulties still. We have weaknesses we haven't come together because we have simply shared interests or hobbies in life. We come together because we share Christ in common. But we still have difficulties and we have to deal with each other patiently, humbly, with gentleness. We're not called to live a life in isolation, but in community together. And it will get messy as we open up to each other because we are still messed up ourselves, all of us, in our own ways. We are works in progress by the grace of God. And that's why Paul adds here that this is to be done in love. In love. This whole passage should remind us of another one where Paul defines what love really is. In 1 Corinthians 13, where he defines it saying, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And this is what Paul is calling us to, to love one another in this way as Christ has loved us. It's so easy for someone to profess with their mouth that they love God and serve God, but then turn to their brother and hate their brother. But in his letters, first and second, John, he's defining there for us in those letters that 
if someone does not love their brother, if they turn and hate their brother, they actually do not have the love of God in them. And so we see that we're called to love one another even in times of difficulty when others are being difficult, annoying, and foolish. We are to do it in love, in love, as Christ has loved us. The last part of this command is that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. So I want to ask you, eager, eager, zealous, what are you eager for in your Christian faith? What are you zealous for? You know, because we as a Reformed congregation here, we value growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in theology, etc. Sometimes what happens is people like us get so zealous for book knowledge that we forget about the priority of unity and peace in the church. But let's remind ourselves that if our zeal for truth overtakes or overcomes our zeal for unity and peace in the church, then that zeal is unbalanced, unbiblical, and ungodly. So what are you more eager for? Getting more knowledge about God or growing in love? And you might respond, well, that's a dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. No, it's not. Because love is the end goal, even for knowledge. So learning always should be leading us to loving more. Knowledge must be the means to the end of loving better, fuller, and more perfectly. And if it isn't, then that knowledge that you're growing in is only vain, deceitful knowledge that is puffing you up. Knowledge should always lead us to loving and more our brothers and sisters in Christ, being more and more zealous to maintain that unity together. And so we ought to be, the command as we've received from Paul, gentle, lowly, patient, and zealous in our pursuit of love and peace in Christ. So that's the command. Now, secondly, and briefly, these last two points, the cause, the cause of our unity. Now, by the cause, I mean the origin or the source of our unity. Paul tells us what it is in verse 3. Look again at the text there, verse 3, where he says, it is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, the Holy Spirit is the cause, the origin of our life together, of our community together. Just as we saw back in chapter 2, our own personal faith, in salvation. What is the cause of it? It's not ourselves. It is not of us, but it is of God. The Holy Spirit makes us come alive together with Christ. And so, the Holy Spirit is also the cause and source of the unity of the church. The Holy Spirit is the source and sustainer of our community. This means that we must rely upon and yield to the Holy Spirit in the building up of the church. It is not for us to create our community. And that might be a bit shocking. It's not for us, ultimately, to create our community. It is created by the Spirit of God through the word of the gospel. He creates it. And we are to rely upon him and yield to him in the building up of his church. And this is a crucial point. Why? Because each of us, right now, in this very moment, each of us, if we went into our inner mind, we have an ideal version of what the church should be. We have our dream vision of the church, all the kinds of music that we like, all the songs, the type of preacher and sermons that we like, the liturgy, the order of service, etc., all the kinds of programs that we wish were happening 
throughout the week and throughout the whole year in the church. We all have that ideal ver- vision of what the church should be. If we were to build it, if we were in charge, that's how we would do it, we say. But we aren't the creators of our community. The Spirit of God is. Notice that Paul, he says that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You maintain things that already exist. We are called to love the church, not as it could be, but as it is currently today, now. We are not called to hold back our love, reserving it and waiting for the church to get better, waiting for it to become the better ideal version of the church as we want it to be. No, we are to love the church today as it stands now. We are to love each other as we are now today. Even as Christ himself, he did not wait for us to become perfect. He loved us while we were still enemies. He died for us in order to make us perfect. And so we are to lay down our lives for the sake of the church to make it more and more perfect. And this is so important because our dream of the church can get in the way of loving the church as it is today. And Bonhoeffer, he pinpointed this so well in his book, Life Together, where he says this. Listen, this is is so good. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may may be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of the Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and, ju- and God accordingly. It is not we who build, Christ builds the church. You see, we should desire purity and perfection of the church of Christ, but we can't let those dreams or the lack of those ideals keep us from loving the church now as it is. Our call is to live in unity, and we must rely upon and yield to the Holy Spirit, who is the cause of our unity together. And so let's look now at the third point in verses 4 through 6, the core of our unity, the, the essential teachings of our unity. These are the core teachings upon which our unity is grounded in the Christian faith. This is essentially these, four, or these verses 4 through 6, an early creed that the Apostle Paul wrote here for the Ephesians, a concise statement of what we believe as Christians. And notice the emphasis on one, or oneness here. He repeats one seven times, and clearly to strike home that point about the unity that we have together, what we have in common. He says there is one body, one spirit. You are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So we see that Paul, he starts with the Holy Spirit, then he moves to the Son, who is our Lord, then he finishes with the Father, God. And so together we are united by, in, and for the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And loved ones, Paul is showing us that in Christ, what unites us is bigger and more important than anything that can threaten to divide us. I'm going to repeat that. That in Christ, what unites us is bigger and more important than anything that threatens to divide us. 
Paul's giving us here an important lesson about what we are united in and by God himself and the gospel. These are non-negotiable truths that he lays out for us, but the fact that he lays out non-negotiable essential core teachings implies that there are other things that are not as essential to the Christian faith. They might be important, yes, and laid out for us in Scripture, but they are not as essential, and so we are to not major in the minors, but be united in what is the core of our faith together. Now, on this point, um, Alistair Begg, a pastor, he says, on non-essential matters, we should agree to disagree without being disagreeable, making sure that none of these issues robs us of the genuine joy that is ours in the gospel. And even John Calvin, the reformer, talked about the importance of having charity with one another as Christians on matters that are non-essential. And here, Paul, he lays out some essential core teachings of the gospel, and much more could be said about this, but we must remember just in brief here, that we are to keep before us always what holds us together, those essential core teachings, the one true God and his true gospel. And here I have for you my last quote from Bonhoeffer, where he speaks about what unites us as Christians. He says, what determines our brotherhood is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning as though uh, in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. No, it remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. And the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work be the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy for eternity. You see, this is what sets the Christian community, or ought to, set it apart from all other communities that are formed in the world. Because we don't just see each other as people who might be like us that have the same interest or hobby as we do. No, we see each other as we are in Christ, and that is unique about us as a Christian community. It's powerful, too. We see our brother and sister as God sees them in Christ. We see them through the blood-colored glasses of the gospel of Christ. We see those, we, I see you as those who have been washed by the blood of Christ and covered in his righteousness as remade in the image of God, renewed by his Holy Spirit, children of the Father. And that sets our community apart. We see beyond just those outward interests and hobbies or appearances, and we see what God has declared about each of us in Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's saying we look beyond those appearances. We look beyond judging people according to the flesh. We see them as they are in Christ, part of the new creation in him. And this should change the way our community exists. 
The gospel can cut across all so-called identities that we have in this life. Our identity as baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit becomes our ultimate identity that demotes all other competing identities and identity markers. We might have nothing else in common in this life, but what we have in common is the one who made all things out of nothing. And so he can make fellowship out of the nothing that we have in common. He is powerful to do it. Because our fellowship is not based on what our likes or preferences are in common, but instead on whom we have in common, the God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the God of the gospel, our triune God, God himself is the basis of our unity together. And so nothing else in all of the universe is greater than God. Therefore, nothing else is great enough to break the bond of peace that already exists between us. Nothing is able to break that peace. As long as God is the source and sustainer of our unity, nothing can ultimately get between you and me There might be tension or conflict that exists between brothers, but ultimately it will be reconciled by the power of Christ at work in us. In Christ, we are inseparably bound together for all of eternity. And even if there is that conflict, God is bigger than it. He will overcome it. And in time, he will reconcile us and make peace. And so at the close, why, why should we be zealous to maintain this unity and peace in the church with all humility and all patience? Because this is the way of life that is worthy of God's grace. Because God has done all things possible to unite us to Jesus and to one another. Therefore, let us walk in that unity together and do all things to make it a greater reality, and preserve that unity that we have in him. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this strong exhortation and command which has come to us from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, there's so much more for us to discover and find in this passage to meditate upon. We ask even now that for the rest of this day, as we go home on this Lord's Day, that we might uh, meditate on this passage, read it over again, and think about how it might be challenging us personally to love one another more and more, to be more humble, more gentle, more approachable, and to seek greater unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Work this zeal for unity and love into our hearts, for it is your desire, as we find in your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.